Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, and now Cindy S., all of whom are unfucking insane level members of the show. Well, welcome back to Unfucking the Republic, a delightful little pod experiment where we examine U.S. economic and socioeconomic policies, tell some stories, and revel in the shared language of learning and dissent. Our merry band of unfuckers picked up some travelers along the way, so a hearty how the fuck are you to our uncanuckers up north, Eurofuckers across the pond, down underfuckers, subfuckers over on Substack, and our newly formed Uncluckers. No formal resolution on Uncluckers has been adopted, and I'm still tempted to filibuster any attempt to unfuck that into law. Well, be that as it may, 99, we have a duty to our veggie and vegan listeners, and I have a lot of support on this one. Anyway, we also have pitch fuckers, bottle fuckers, and pack fuckers. You all know who you are. And I hope everyone is chilling at home with a belly full of leftovers and UNFTR playing on whatever your preferred government home listening device might be. Nothing drives those conservative family members who have overstayed their welcome away faster than playing UNFTR at an uncomfortable volume. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Now, last week I gave thanks to all of the unfuckers who've supported our show and you really doubled down by offering us even more. It's just unreal. If you'd like to support UNFTR, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR to become a member or offer a one-time donation. Or you can purchase our native roasted coffee in partnership with the Unkachog Nation at UNFTR.com. So we have a lot to be thankful for this holiday, unfuckers, and we're going to turn things around a bit in show notes to see if you'll join me, Manny, and 99 in a special GoFundMe for a native organization looking to raise $5,000 to fix a winter heating system. More on that later. For today, we're building on the Global Order of Money and the Global Order of Power episodes to examine fiscal and force policies more narrowly by focusing on the Caribbean. And I, yeah, yes, I'm calling it the Caribbean and not the Caribbean, even though 99 and I think that the, it should be Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Not just, anyway. So I'm calling it the Caribbean. That's where we're at. We'll be able to pull in some threads from our Cuba episode and our Fuck Milton Friedman episode as well as we continue to tell the story of U.S. imperialism and policy more globally. Now, for our purposes, we're talking about most of the territories surrounding the Caribbean Sea, specifically Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, Cuba, Haiti, Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico. In so many ways, these territories were the proving ground for neoliberalism. But long before that, they were the objects of American and European imperialist attention and victims of economic and human enslavement, rich in natural resources, but limited in their capacity to defend themselves. Most Caribbean countries haven't had a moment's rest from occupation and plunder for hundreds of years. But in the past 100 years, no country has exerted more catastrophic influence over the Caribbean than yours truly, the real pirates of the Caribbean. I confess, it is my intention to commandeer one of these ships, pick up a crew in Tortuga, raid, pillage, plunder, and otherwise pilfer my Weasley Black Guts out. I said no lies. U to the N to the FGR. Unfucking the Republic, beating people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Max brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could've run for office, could've got up off his ass. Could've made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo. The UNFPR show. Many faces ripping the script with unfuckers around the globe. And bring it, brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. Unfuckers, unconnuckers, you're a fuckers 99. I'm the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to out of Gami, Halifax to New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman. Barbados, Grenada, ooh, I wanna take ya. Curacao, Guyana, come on, pretty mama. The Turks, 
White sandy beaches, hiking through luscious tropical rainforests at sunrise, sipping exotic cocktails with little umbrellas at sunset. Americans love their Caribbean vacations. Come, visit your money in that offshore account and stay at one of our all-you-can-eat inclusive resorts, brought to you by hundreds of years of colonial rule. Don't mind all those skinny cows and dirt lots between the airport and your resort. That's just there for authenticity. As you know, I love anecdotes from history that tell the story of America, so I thought I'd start off by telling an old tale about the most notorious American filibuster. You will not use the filibuster. Not that filibuster, Bernie. A filibuster of an entirely different sort. Settle in on fuckers as I tell you about a legendary figure in U.S. history named William Walker. I am William Wallace. No, William Walker. <clears throat> anyway. Long before the word filibuster was used to describe the parliamentary quirk in Congress that allows the minority to scuttle the will of the majority, it was used to describe private contractors, vigilantes really, who invaded foreign nations to plunder and pillage. Imagine Eric Prince, but in the mid-1800s. Now, these groups were rather common around this time. The U.S. was steadily advancing across the continental expanse and had laid down declarations to Europe that it wasn't to trifle in this hemisphere any longer. But the federal government was still weak compared to what it would become, and rogue actors were often able to play out their own expansionist fantasies by raising small armies. Perhaps the most notorious filibuster of the time was William Walker. I am William Wallace. Stop it. Anywho, Walker hailed from Tennessee and would try multiple times to declare himself the leader of wherever the fuck he found himself, beginning with Southern California. After an unsuccessful attempt to find gold, he decided to stick around and anoint himself supreme ruler of the territory and even issued a decree to legalize slavery. After only a couple of short months, he marched into part of Mexico and declared it part of his fiefdom as well. This guy was a piece of work for sure. The Mexicans weren't having any of it, so they threw him out and his experiment out west came to an abrupt end, but he was far from done. His next move was to organize mercenaries to take over Nicaragua alongside the domestic liberal insurgency there. He did just that, but then he refused to leave after taking power. The fact that this guy had the stones to do stuff like this was one thing, but it was another thing entirely when the United States recognized Walker as the rightful leader of Nicaragua. This will be a recurring theme, by the way. So this fucking nutjob establishes Nicaragua as a slave nation, made English the official language, and held a rigged election to declare himself president. Pretty impressive stuff. But he made one huge mistake. Push the people of Nicaragua too far? Ooh, did something to piss off the U.S. government? <laughs> no, sillies. He found himself on the wrong side of corporate America when he tried to shake down Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt would fund a counterattack that drove Walker out of Central America and killed many of the filibusters that followed him to glory. Once back in the United States, however, he did what any disgraced slave-owning military operative and mercenary from the United States would do. He went on a speaking tour in the United States. Ultimately, everyone got tired of Walker's bullshit and he was captured at sea on some stupid misadventure and given over to the Hondurans, who killed him immediately. 
What I find fascinating about Walker's story is that it just isn't told. This motherfucker overthrew a whole country and the United States was like, cool, just make it a slave state. My man returned to the Southwest U.S. a legit hero. And everyone was cool with this until he ticked off the wrong billionaire. I mean, if this isn't the ultimate allegory for U.S. growth and interventions, I don't know what is. Now, before we get to the present day, I think it's important to walk through the history of our relationships with the Caribbean nations in terms of attitude and behavior and how these attitudes translated to policy. Because these policies have proven remarkably intractable and signify something much deeper about who we are as a nation, much of which is painfully familiar. And many of these attitudes were just a carryover from our European heritage, whether we want to admit it or not. Eyeing Caribbean nations was a thing long before Walker. As president, Thomas Jefferson sought to exclude all European influence from the hemisphere, believing that anything touching the United States and pretty much everything in the Caribbean belonged to the United States. It wasn't a matter of if, but when. The first official policy to this end came only a few years later under President Madison with something called the No Transfer Resolution of 1811. It was essentially a response to the continued Spanish presence in the hemisphere. The Louisiana Purchase under Jefferson didn't include Western Florida, which was still under control of the Spanish government and home to the Seminoles and other native peoples. Importantly, this resolution was proposed by then Secretary of State James Monroe, who would of course become the namesake of the doctrine that governed our attitude in the hemisphere for most of our history. It's important to recognize that the Caribbean was on the receiving end of imperialism and colonialism long before us. In fact, the United States was a welcome participant to some in the struggle for Caribbean independence, given the brutal and sordid history with Western European powers who regarded their role as colonists as necessary under what Rudyard Kipling termed the white man's burden. Now, Rudyard Kipling, poet of imperialism, spoke of these people as half devil and half child. In the 19th century, many Britons felt it was their duty to bring British law to them. Of course, this may now seem to have been very arrogant and high-handed. Cynics may say that the real reason imperialists established law and order was to make it safe for themselves to take everything in sight and ship it back to the mother country. But in the United States, there was a sensitivity to colonialism, at least as a concept. This whole idea was too reminiscent of our own founding, and there was a keen awareness of how this type of relationship could foster revolutionary feelings toward the oppressor. So when we did get involved, we stopped short of referring to our occupations or support as colonization and considered them protectorates instead, intended in the most paternalistic and patronizing way possible, of course. When the U.S. defeated the British once again in the War of 1812, it began to see its place in the world a little differently. Two generations on from the revolution, the scrappy young nation began cultivating a professional political class determined to expand the nation under a philosophy called the Monroe Doctrine, undoubtedly a familiar concept to most unfuckers. We were pressing our interests against Mexico, pushing further west, and had booted the Spanish from Florida. There was a curious alliance among political adversaries that found common ground in the idea of expansionism. So enormous figures of the day, like John Quincy Adams, who was then serving President Monroe, had strong generals like Andrew Jackson to do the dirty work clearing out indigenous tribes from their lands. Here's Adams on Cuba to illustrate how deep our paternalism ran. Quote, There are laws of political as well as of physical gravitation. And if an apple, severed by the tempest from its native tree, cannot choose but fall to the ground, 
Cuba, forcibly disjoined from its own unnatural connection with Spain and incapable of self-support, can gravitate only toward the North American Union, which, by the same law of nature, cannot cast her off from its bosom." End quote. Building on the no-transfer resolution under Madison, the Monroe Doctrine plainly stated that no intervention in our hemisphere by European powers would be tolerated, saying, quote, We should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety, end quote. In so many ways, this very statement would foreshadow American policy for the next 200 years, particularly during the Cold War and the War on Terror. The rest of the 19th century would in fact be a deliciously evil mix of the Monroe Doctrine and the concept of manifest destiny, a term coined by writer John O'Sullivan in 1845 that essentially argued that it was our God-given destiny to press ocean to ocean. As we grew up as a nation and created formal doctrines that telegraphed to the world our approach to foreign affairs, the Caribbean remained a fascination for U.S. leaders. Walker-style vigilantism subsided and was replaced by formal military interventions and occupations whenever it suited our needs. But the one thing that remained was the tension between occupation and colonialism. For some, this was a magnanimous approach to addressing our interests abroad, and for others, it was a difference without a distinction. Nevertheless, the procedural hurdles the U.S. would create to intervene without crossing some imaginary colonialist line was very real. One example of this tension was the back-to-back -back amendments at the turn of the 20th century regarding Cuba. The first was called the Teller Amendment, proposed by Senator Henry Teller, which expressly stated that the United States would not exercise permanent control over Cuba, even though we were at war with Spain over Cuban independence. The war that would make Teddy and his Rough Riders famous in America, by the way. Shortly thereafter, another motion called the Platt Amendment superseded and weakened Teller by claiming the right to, quote, intervene for the preservation of Cuban independence, the maintenance of a government adequate for the protection of life, property, and individual liberty, end quote. This statute remained in place until 1934. So while not explicitly stating that we would take it over at any given time, Platt gave the United States a very open and one-sided policy rationale to intervene in Cuban affairs pretty much any time we wanted. Now, we covered a great deal of our relationship with Cuba in our Cuba Not-So-Libre episode, but a lot obviously happened between the Spanish-American War and the Castro Revolution in 1959. But I want to move to neighboring Puerto Rico for a moment to highlight a stark difference in our approach to these islands. What happened around the time of the Platt Amendment with respect to Puerto Rico is interesting because it charted a very different path for Puerto Rico. For reference, I'm pulling from an outstanding article and episode from Manny Face's production Newsbeat, which you can find at usnewsbeat.com. As the U.S. entered the war in Cuba in 1898, it also invaded Puerto Rico. And make no mistake, this was full-on colonization of the island, though we didn't refer to it as such. Two decades later, Woodrow Wilson, who we've talked about a lot lately, pulled off another incredibly racist and imperialist move. From Newsbeat, quote, Besides creating a legislative system and reforming Puerto Rico's municipal government, the Jones Act, signed into law in March 1917 by President Woodrow Wilson, imposed U.S. citizenship to all Puerto Ricans born on and after April 25, 1898. The following month, he addressed a joint session of Congress to request a declaration of war against Germany and the United States' entrance into World War I. 
18,000 Puerto Ricans are then conscripted and sent off to battle across Europe, end quote. I mean, what fucking, oh, just unimaginable. So since our unwelcome involvement in Puerto Rico, we've subjected the Puerto Rican people to what can only be described as atrocities. From mass sterilizations to unwarranted incarcerations, we've held the island inhabitants under our thumbs since the beginning in ways that very few Americans know or appreciate to this day. As citizens of a so-called protectorate, Puerto Ricans have some access to the American system, but not full access. For example, Puerto Ricans can't vote for president, and they can't import or export goods unless it's via U.S. ships. Again from Newsbeat, quote, a 1976 tax loophole basically exempted manufacturers and large corporations from having to pay income taxes, which resulted in American companies, mostly pharmaceuticals, transplanting to Puerto Rico. These became the island's largest employers and also solidified a decades-long shift away from what had been historically an agricultural economy. Its 1996 repeal and 2006 phase-out resulted in the mass exodus of these economic drivers and job providers ratcheting up the already grossly popular issuance of municipal bonds, which had the golden designation of being triple tax-exempt, meaning exemption from federal, state, and local taxes. Now, when these bonds were downgraded to junk status by credit rating agencies in 2014, the government was blocked from issuing more, leading to the passage of the Puerto Rico Oversight, Management, and Economic Stability Act by the U.S. Congress in 2016, which imposed a financial oversight and management board that's been mandating deep austerity measures, cutting into education and social services, government jobs, and so much more. To add insult to injury, Puerto Rico is blocked from bankruptcy protection, too, due to a controversial amendment by then-Republican U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond in 1984. Just to give you all a little taste of my other show, Newsbeat, where we mix high-level journalism with original verses from independent hip-hop artists, here's a little taste from the episode Max is talking about. These lyrics were written and delivered by internationally acclaimed artist and Bronx, New York native, Intigana. They left Philly Beto bleed to death So many wet FBI crap Left about a hundred shots at his rest Hands on his chest couldn't stop the blood flow Suffocating blood traveling through the lungs slow Grito de lares Resisting all the conquest Betances Sacrifice unity the process Gracias al bisu Le Lolita teach you about Puerto Rico Our flag was illegal The gag law Task force Pulling out our passports Hands on the dashboard Face on the asphalt Anytime we ask for Freedom, we just get bashed more. Flash on the camcorder, but let us just fast forward. Past the massacres, they asking us to pass the nine. It's asinine, they yelling, telling you to get your ass in line. That's why you always see us go all out in the parade. Even when it rains, cause our pride won't be a race. El pueblo está muerto, muerto. Está desierto, un deseo. Dame un momento, lo siento. Necesito tiempo, no tengo miedo. Ahora te veo, mi cielo. El diablo es feo, lo siento, el pueblo está muerto, está desierto, dame un momento. So in many ways, the Puerto Rican experience is tantamount to our entire worldview and how we develop methods through violence, one-sided diplomacy, an oxymoron for sure, and economic gangsterism. The roots of our economic gangsterism can be found in something we termed dollar diplomacy, which, like most policies, wasn't all good and wasn't all bad. In fact, much like the Marshall Plan coming out of World War II, there was a lot to like about this strategy. So again, 
We're back to around the turn of the 20th century, a pivotal time in the history of the Caribbean and Central America as it relates to U.S. foreign policy, at least. The European nations were finally losing their iron grip on these countries with the U.S. flexing its muscle in the region. In some cases, we offered salvation at first. In others, it was simply frying pan into the fire. Dollar diplomacy began in Central America and would come to typify our economic strategy. It was a way for nations to refinance expensive European debt with American funds on more favorable terms. Now, the fear was that debt default to these nations would inspire European interventions to force repayment. So rather than deal with encroachments to our newly defined territory under the Monroe Doctrine, we just refinanced the deals. Of course, Wall Street would need more assurances than just promises, so the concept of dollar diplomacy was born whereby the government guaranteed repayment of its debts under threat of U.S. military intervention. Quite a guarantee. We extended this concept to the Caribbean as well by refinancing Dominican debt in 1905, which would set the stage for a full takeover of the country in 1916. This was a step up in sophistication for the United States, which had relied until this time on something called gunboat diplomacy. As Alan McPherson writes in A Short History of U.S. Interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean, quote, between 1869 and 1897, Washington sent warships into Latin American ports 5,980 times. Some of these were friendly enough visits, but most of the time U.S. forces landed to oversee a change in political regimes, to quell riots or a civil war, or to enforce a commercial treaty, end quote. Throughout the first part of the 20th century, we employed every means at our disposal to bend Caribbean nations to our will. We occupied Nicaragua for 13 years, beginning in 1912. We kicked the Colombians out of Panama and recognized it as an independent nation. In return, we basically seized the 10-mile stretch we needed to build the Panama Canal in an agreement with the Panamanians. Except that an agreement usually implies consent from both sides, which we didn't have. Hmm, strange. The Dominican and Haiti were strategically located in the path toward the Panama Canal, so we extended our purview out of fear that Germany would attempt to take them over during the First World War, but always with an eye towards preventing Spain, France, and Britain from regaining footholds as well. Our modus operandi was to help kick out the occupiers, let things dissolve in the vacuum, take over the debt, and then step back in under the auspices of the white man's burden. Sometimes we put in place necessary and beneficial infrastructure, roads, railways, ports, hospitals, sanitation, etc. We did it in Haiti, Panama, and Cuba. In many ways, we treated these occupied territories better than the Native American territories or even some of the poorest white rural parts of the nation. But these projects weren't the result of benevolence. They were typically intended to stabilize a strong consumer market for U.S. exports and to streamline the economic order to fit the tastes and expectations of American corporations looking to privatize sectors of these economies. So a consistent theme underlying our behavior, which will come as no great surprise to anyone, was deep and abiding racism. Our view of these nations was that they were incapable of self-governing because of their mixed-race heritage or pure blackness. And the darker the citizens of a nation, the greater our hatred has always been toward them. In the Caribbean, there's no better example than Haiti. Woodrow Wilson was concerned that the Germans would encroach on American territories, with Haiti being an obvious target, or so he believed. So, we took it over. Williams Jennings Bryan, himself almost president a couple of times, was Secretary of State at the time and exclaimed, quote, Dear me, think of it, N words speaking French, end quote. This pretty much summed up the American attitude toward the Haitian people. 
You dick! In Haiti, we wasted little time in taking over everything. Through dollar diplomacy, we took over their debt. Through gunboat diplomacy, we took over the government. And through corporatism, we took over everything else. We gave land to American citizens, tore up the Haitian constitution, and installed our own leaders in sham elections, just like that. On the flip side, we built out the Haitian infrastructure because, as we reconciled in our infrastructure episode last week, there's always money for bridges, roads, railways, airports, and ports, so long as they're in service of moving our goods along safely. Always money in the banana stand. Of course, there's another side to Haiti, literally. The Dominican Republic, on the other side of the island of Hispaniola, didn't escape our view either. The Dominican resolve against the U.S., though, was stronger than that of Haiti, and our hatred of the Dominican people was less because they were of a lighter complexion. While we still thought them incapable of self-governing, they were higher on the racial pecking order. Nevertheless, we fully occupied the DR for three years during World War I, again under the pretense of preventing Germany from landing there. We would skirmish with the occupied people and forces on and off for a few years until the signing of the Hughes-Pinedo Agreement, which essentially refinanced Dominican debt and gave us supervision of financial matters on the island. So we got what we wanted, and American corporations had assurances that they could safely access goods and labor of the DR. The island would maintain a brief period of relative calm until a dictator named Rafael Trujillo overthrew the government using the very forces the U.S. Marines had trained just a few years earlier. He ruled until the 1960s with the full support of the United States. Haiti's experience, however, remained horrific and only got worse from there. Here's an excerpt from American Imperialism's Undead by Rafael DeLeo. Quote, From 1915 to 1934, then, the United States engaged in a grand nation-building experiment in Haiti. Without having to worry about respecting local, political, social, or economic conditions, U.S. representatives in Haiti were able to socially engineer their visions of a utopia. The main areas of this transformation were the political system and the economy, especially finance and agriculture. Upon arrival, the Marines dissolved Haiti's existing political institutions. In the place of the Haitian army, a new gendarmerie was created that would operate as Haiti's state during the occupation. The Gendarmerie was able to wield virtually unlimited, unchecked power on the island. Thousands of Haitians were killed to establish and maintain this power." End quote. Now, at the risk of giving you whiplash, I want to fast forward to Afghanistan for a moment. Think of how we occupied it, put in place systems that allowed us to function there, trained their domestic law enforcement agencies, built some infrastructure, and then just disappeared. So what's happening in the wake of our disappearance from that region is just deja vu from what we did in Haiti and the Dominican. In fact, the parallels are astounding. We took what we needed, when we needed it, all under the auspices of preventing someone else from occupying the region. We claimed they couldn't govern without us, and when we pulled out, the collapse of institutions that were propped up by our military and our money appeared to prove this very point, while missing the larger point. And leaving cleared the way for authoritarian forces to take over. Trujillo and the Dominican, as we said, and in Haiti, something far more evil and insidious. Few people, it can be safely said, have been so downtrodden, so badly used as the Haitians under Duvalier. His power was the power of the gun, his politics the politics of the firing squad. Even though our troops withdrew from Haiti, our fiscal control remained until the Second World War. But the condition of us ceding financial control was complete satisfaction of our debts, which required Haiti to deplete its gold reserves entirely leaving the nation flat broke. Out of the ashes of our occupation and financial ruin came a man named Francois Papadoc Duvalier, 
who was corrupt and utterly ruthless. Little hope would come to the Haitian people when Papa Doc passed away as his son, referred to as Baby Doc, assumed control and reigned even more ferociously than his father. Both men enjoyed the complete support and cooperation of the United States, which saw an opportunity to use Haiti as the, quote, Taiwan of the Caribbean, essentially a client state of the U.S. that existed only for our financial pleasure. Our relationship with the Caribbean nations is and has always been that of the worst big brother ever. It's a story of either extreme interventionist paternalism or extreme indifference and nothing in between. We're there for them when it suits our business and political interests or to just sit our fat fucking asses on their beaches. Otherwise, we simply ignore them while never ceding enough economic authority for them to pursue true independence or self-determination. We overthrew the governments of Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, even Grenada. We offered them the promise of protection so long as they gave over their resources and built infrastructure to meet our insatiable demands of global trade. We used them as prisons, as in Guantanamo, cut-throughs for trade, as in Panama, secure their natural resources like Puerto Rico and Nicaragua. We used them as safe harbor for ill-gotten gains, as in the Caymans, Bahamas, and Virgin Islands. And when they hint of self-determination, we just fucking invade. And in the 1980s, we used them as convenient flashpoints in the so-called war on drugs, leaving behind for a moment how the Reagan administration literally created the drug war out of nothing, which we covered in our mass incarceration episode. It also used the levers of trade to further pound these territories into submission when they might otherwise have finally climbed out of the grips of dictatorships. During the 1980s, writes Samantha Chaitram in American Foreign Policy in the English-Speaking Caribbean, Quote, the United States developed unilateral preferential trading schemes, which were tailored to specific geographic regions. The first trade preference program designed for the Caribbean was the Caribbean Basin Initiative, or CBI. 24 countries were designated as beneficiary countries from the Caribbean and Central America. These countries were eligible for duty-free or reduced tariff access for specific products if they met certain conditions, end quote. So these conditions, by the way, included declarations of anti-communism and extradition treaties, for example. So overall, as Chaitram notes, quote, products excluded from preferential market access were those which were important export products from the Caribbean Basin region, such as textiles, apparel products, and petroleum products, end quote. So effectively... We created one-way benefits for trade and excluded the very things that would have helped the local economies, all while building up a militarized narco network that saw the United States both build the drug trafficking industry through covert CIA operations and enforce it through overt DEA operations that combined to squeeze the region in a wash of illicit drugs and cash and hyper-U.S. militarization. So even if the CBI was effective, it all came undone during the Clinton years and the passage of NAFTA. Because NAFTA not only fucked the American worker right in the starfish, but it basically sidestepped any industrial opportunity and advantages the Caribbean basin nations might have ever had. In a way, I guess we double-teamed them. Ha <laughs> ha, now you're talking my language. So to review... We destroy their natural economic potential by turning them from agrarian to industrial economies, with only the U.S. corporations giving permission to extract profits. 
And when these circumstances boil over into full-fledged humanitarian crises, we turn it into racist political infighting domestically and conveniently absolve ourselves from a hundred years of policy that has contributed to the political, social, and economic devastation of these nations. And then we play the blame game. So simply by crossing an international border, a line on a map, these migrants move instantly from poverty to the unimaginable benefits of the world's most generous welfare state, our country. So who wouldn't make that trip? When it comes to illegal immigration, you just can't trust the Biden administration. It would be like trusting uh, Harvey Weinstein with your dog. There are uh, immigrants all over the world who move to Norway. Nobody voluntarily moves to Haiti. Critics are tearing into Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Twitter for posting pictures of her grandmother's storm-ravaged home in Puerto Rico instead of helping her. Imagine being Kamala Harris. You take your first big trip south of the border to what we used to call the developing world, and you're pretty excited about it because you know that as a licensed person of color, all the other people of color you're gonna meet will be thrilled to see you. That's how it works in the people of color community. These narratives are allowed to prevail because we don't know our history. These are the times I like to return to the Tyson Principle, though I admit to failing on this to a great degree. The Tyson Principle is my reminder that we should endeavor to emerge from these episodes with a clear direction, some tangible step forward that we can all take. And yet for most of our shows, I struggle to find one clear thing that we can rally around. Mostly because we're just always pulling threads, always uncovering more and more bullshit in an effort to understand why we are the way we are. So while I struggle again to say, hey, here's a thing we can do, here's something we can sign or pledge or support, whatever, I can say that the very process of researching, writing, interviewing, and recording this show has been revelatory. Now, I hope you feel the way I do, that the picture of who we are gets clearer and clearer as we go on, and so does my resolve to back progressive ideas and candidates. The idea of colonialism was anathema to us, given our history of being colonized. But the inevitable allure of power led us to colonize under different names and policies. We've been the oppressor for so long, it's almost as if we can't see ourselves clearly anymore. The only part of our history we seem able to cling to is that of the plucky revolutionaries who broke free of British rule, but everything after that point just gets mixed into this cauldron of amnesia and bullshit. It's why we can't hear the words critical race theory without freaking the fuck out. It's why we have such a hard time with forced migration and asylum seekers. We just can't see our own involvement in the construction of the world we live in and the destruction that it brings to others. But now we're coming into a life and death period that's bigger than all of us. It's bigger than war, bigger than structural racism, bigger than poverty. By denying the Caribbean and Central American nations the opportunity to develop naturally, build organically, and determine their own fate, we've condemned them in the face of climate change. These nations who contribute the least to climate change are going to be the most devastated by the effects of it. Shakespearean doesn't begin to describe the great tragedy of all of this. William Walker never really died. He just evolved into all of us. Over the past hundred plus years, the defenseless Caribbean nations served as a convenient foil or mistress to our twisted appetite for control. It's like it's beyond us to allow anyone to succeed without paying blood tribute to us with their labor and resources. All of the time, money, and force used to intervene in the Caribbean could have been used so much more productively. But they were always less than because of their blackness. Incapable, savage, backwards. The words might have changed over the years, unless you're fucker Carlson, but the intent is the same. 
And now we've consigned them to an ugly and ignominious fate at the hands of our industrial greed. So even if we suddenly have a change of heart, it's almost too late. So if history is an echo from the past heard in the future, then hopefully you heard the echoes of Woodrow Wilson in our treatment of Haiti, of William Walker in our treatment of Nicaragua, the echo of Milton Friedman in our treatment of everyone over the past 50 years. When we hear these echoes clearly, it helps us understand ourselves so that we can move forward with empathy. The only way to push back on the corrosive narratives of the right, like the ones you heard before, is to speak loudly with new language. In the coming years, more and more migrants will seek shelter on our shores. And if we allow the language of the right wing to drown out history and change the narrative, it will only lead to more death and destruction. And we'll just be sitting here wondering how the fuck it all happened. Fuck Woodrow Wilson. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Fuck Milton Friedman. And free Puerto Rico. Here endeth the lesson. Hey, welcome to Show Notes on Fuckers. As I mentioned up top, just before we get started here, I wanted to tell you about a small GoFundMe that we are rallying support behind. It is to raise $5,000 for heating inside the main house, which doubles as the long house in a Mohawk community upstate New York. So the community is called Gunnett Johalege, and it was founded in the 1990s by elders from St. Regis Aguasasne, which was experiencing a tremendous amount of turmoil at the time. And so uh, the spiritual leader of Aguasasne was a gentleman named Tom Porter, who might be the kindest, most wonderful person on planet Earth, left with a few others, raised some money to form a nonprofit entity to purchase back land in the Mohawk Valley, upstate New York, and I believe Kanajahari. The conditions there are, you know, like everywhere else, it's a beautiful farm. It's a working farm. Uh, they've got horses there. They have crops there as well. They host a powwow every year as a fundraiser. And one of the things, like you heard from Harry Wallace with the Unkachog episode that we did, is they have a Mohawk language reclamation project as well. So they do teach the Mohawk language to young people in the community. But it's a very small community. It is an important community because it was one of the first examples of being able to, even though they couldn't expand the reservation system necessarily, to be able to reclaim certain territory and live with the native principles that they exist with for many years. So their heating system broke. There were pipes that broke beneath the main house. And we are running an effort to try and hop onto their GoFundMe. So the show just donated. And if you can see your way clear to doing it, we're leaving a link in show notes, $5, $10, $50, anything that you can contribute to help them before the winter gets too nuts up there. And it does get very, very cold. Uh, there's a mountain in the background and it overlooks a river. And when the wind whips up there, it gets just really, really cold. 
Many, many moons ago, I worked there in a volunteer capacity, and I got to know a lot of the people who lived there, and I got to know Tom Porter. And I can tell you from personal experience that Tom Porter truly is one of the most genuine, sweet, authentic people that you, there's not a bad bone in this guy's body. And he is truly keeping the spirit of the Mohawk people alive. And it was pretty triumphant to return to the valley there to where their ancestors live. So anything you could do to support them would be great. That's it. And here we are officially in show notes. We have a lot of great resources. There are some articles that we've linked here from The New Yorker, Newsbeat, uh, Library of Congress, the Inter-American Development Bank. And for our book club this week, we have, as we discussed, a short history of U.S. interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean by Alan McPherson, Rafael Daleo, American Imperialism's Undead, Occupation of Haiti and the Rise of Caribbean Anticolonialism, and Samantha Chaitram, which is the book called American Foreign Policy in the English-Speaking Caribbean. There you have it. 99. What's shaken? Not much. There's a serious... Uh, You've actually gained some steam since I wrote that introduction. I thought I, pr I pretty much had Uncluckers down. And since then, I feel like you've been doing maybe some direct outreach to get <laughs> some people on your side that Uncluckers isn't going to happen. I don't know. I think it's just one of those divisive things. What's so divisive about it? Uncluckers is just right. It's right. I think, yeah. I think you know it and everybody knows it. Have you come around to it? Absolutely not. I'll leave that with an ellipsis to be determined. Dun, dun, dun. Now, getting into memberships and donations, here's a cool one. Derek R., but not the Derek R. that you think it is. In fact, he even says, yes, there's another Derek R. Dun, dun, dun. Hi, UNFTR. I got to say, you all are amazing. I've been wanting to do this for a bit, and I've bought your most amazing coffee already. And I got to say, the podcast has been super amazing. Thank you for all your amazingness, and keep up the awesomeness. 99. Atomic Dog! Exclamation point! Is also now a member. Hey there, Max99 and Manny Faces. Just wanted to show my appreciation for all the hard work you do. I love, love, love your podcast. I've listened to every episode at least twice. The magic of the show is that you don't pull any punches. This is so great. I appreciate that. And I got to say, I kind of like Uncluckers. Sorry, 99. Probably because I spend too much time with my chickens. FMF. Hmm. Clearly, this is a, a bias thing. KFC. <laughs> Chickens, chicken owner, uncluckers. How about our chicken owners can be called uncluckers, but vegans and vegetarians can be called plant fuckers. But wait, so if you're a vegan, you can't even eat the eggs, right? But if you're a vegetarian, you can have the eggs? Is that how that goes? I like to say that you can eat whatever you want. It's my choice. Okay. Because I just don't like people being like, hey, you can't eat this. And I'm like, I'm choosing to do this. Right. I also don't want to take away from people who have legitimate dietary restrictions. I'm just asking no. what the definition is. Yes. Vegetarians can eat eggs. <laughs> Vegans choose not to eat eggs. Yes. However, this person doesn't say they eat eggs. They right. might be just raising chickens. Maybe they have a chicken sanctuary. Either way, Atomic, Atomic Dog, Dog is supporting the fuck out of us. Yeah. I love it. Atomic Dog, if you have a chicken sanctuary, please tell me. I will come volunteer. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, as you heard up top also, Cindy S. is not just a member now, but an unfucking insane level member of the show. Cindy S. said, been listening for a few weeks now. No clue where I ran across you guys initially. Great show. Really enjoy listening. And I love the Bernie Sanders impressions. Thank you. Thank you very much. David L. is now a member, says, I've been listening for a while now, but through a combination of mental inertia, lack of funds, and all-around malaise, I've been one of the people listening for free. However, the episodes keep getting better and better, and the last episode in the infrastructure bill was definitely your best yet. I really did like that episode. 
I really did. And I think also because it was fresh and people are looking at it and being like, yeah, how is this going to affect me? Like they made such a big deal of it. And then like everything else, like when we talked about Afghanistan, like, hey, just wait two weeks and no one's going to talk about it. We'll get like two weeks past the infrastructure bill. Like by the time we get into the holidays, nobody's even going to remember. And I guarantee people are going to think Trump passed it. I just know it. Anyway, uh, Tim P is now a member as well. Iconoclastic. Brilliant feet on the ground, deeply informative show. Thank you for doing this work, FMF. And Patrick K, rounding it out, bought us five coffees and said thank you for saying fuck Milton Friedman. Well, Patrick, I can tell you, you're welcome. Tell me what's going on over on the Twitters. Sure. At Jersey Warrior 82 who I'm shocked even follows us, based on all the bullshit we've been uh, peddling <laughs> about Jersey. Uh, they said, uncluckers, definitely. Then C. Pietra said, uncluckers, yes, sorry, 99. Tony got a lot of support out there. I know, but just wait till later when we read the, you know, the mm-hmm. not in support. I.R. Skullbeard said, hey, UNFTR pod, in light of the Rittenhouse decision, how do you unfuck Murica's obsession with guns and your broken legal system? Max? Uh, I don't know. There's, uh, I think, close to 400 million guns in the country, and there's only 326 million of us. That's a problem. So, yeah, this one might have gotten away from us a bit. The Rittenhouse decision, good lord, if I have to read one more fucking thing about, listen, you have to understand the law, the law is the law, and, uh, okay, well, you're right, I just don't understand the fucking law, then. I know that this, (laughs) I know this is such a lazy comparison, but it's just, it, because it's like, insert this example for every single fucking thing wrong in America, but it just, you know, if you just replace his race, this goes very, very differently. Yeah. I mean, it's not lazy if it's true. I know. It's just we say it so much that it becomes wallpaper. And it, I just, you know, it's not like, to the people who are listening. It becomes wallpaper to the people who aren't going to who aren't going to make the effort to see the comparison or to understand why we say it. But to the people who understand, they they know why you're saying it anyway. Yeah. Well, this is from Got Shirley. They said hashtag Rittenhouse, hashtag no accountability, no unity. At Hardcore History and UNFTR Pod, keep reminding us. We'll so. keep reminding you. It yeah. just, um, that was one of those that, I, the the other reaction that was pretty much universal was everybody was like, yeah, of course. It was just preordained. Everybody just knew what the outcome was going to be. And that's the kind of shit that just makes you tune out and shut down and be like, all right, fuck it. Nothing's ever going to change. But the reason we do what we do and the reason so many others do what they do on the left side of the spectrum is because we're all trying to cobble together this empathic counter-narrative to the onslaught of bullshit that comes from the right-wing, which is the mainstream media. And you know I'm not, again, lazy about identifying the mainstream media. In fact, I think that that's just such an overblown term, and usually because it's also conflated with the left. So, you know, take the New York Times subscription base out of the equation— Media in this country is predominantly right-wing, and even the -the down-the-middle stuff has no sense of history because a lot of the stuff that we cover on UNFTR, for example, just never makes it into the prevailing narrative. Although I will say, the one thing that I'm kind of psyched about 99, I'm kind of psyched about the fact that Bernie has gone out on a limb, as Bernie does, and said, why are we approving this $787 billion defense bill without any sort of discussion. What are we doing? And he keeps saying it over and over and over again. And that's new. That's new. And I'm kind of psyched about that. And I've seen some clips cover it. But again, you're not going to see that on CNN, which means they're a right-wing media outlet. You're not going to see it on MSNBC, which means it too is a form of a right-wing media outlet. 
Because anytime you're you're just standing and living and existing in defense of the state, you are a state actor. You're just representing a viewpoint to keep us all pitted against each other and, you know, essentially just withholding the context and the facts so that we can make better decisions. I'm tired. If only there was some sort of progressive coalition. If only. On Instagram, Nicole Jelenart shared the show out on their story. Thank you for kind of keeping the flame alive over on Instagram. Not a lot of action over there, but I do think we got, what did we pass a little threshold there, right? What did you send to me? Yeah, we had a little uh, little Instagram 200 follower milestone. Woo-hoo! I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. I think it's pretty great. We've got- we had 17 followers for about eight months. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, well, Facebook is. Don't share all of our metrics out. Oh, can't people see They're that? They're proprietary. No, I'm just kidding. They can see. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a lot of followers on social media, but the ones that do follow us, we love them very much. So let's get to emails and contact form uh, feedback. Uh, Charlie S. regarding uncluckers has a suggested alternative. Unbutters and nut butters, uncaged lockers, soy fuckers, vegan fuckers keeps it simple. Hmm. Seamus said... Plant fucker? Vegan fucker? I agree with 99 on clucker. Sounds horrible. LOL. Vegans are sometimes referred to as plant-based, so I think plant fucker could work. Keep up the great work. All right. Well, there's another one. Hey, Trick. Oh, Trick up north is pretty... Well, the timing of this was pretty astounding. Trick says, this is rare for me, but I had to stop this episode a few minutes in because I was too upset. Not your fault, uh, but catastrophic events uh, in British Columbia... She is, Trick is in South Central BC and still essentially cut off from the port of Vancouver because of the atmospheric river exacerbated climate change, bringing rain so hard it shut down every overland route to Vancouver. Empty grocery shelves, restaurants are closed indefinitely, including Dairy Queen, she says. Basically, it's, it's just sort of catastrophic and all of this does stem from climate change. She shared some pictures with us as well of what was going on up there. Uh, and it was particularly poignant because we were obviously, you know, going through the infrastructure uh, bill in the United States and talking about our eroding bill and how they still recommend uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers says that we need $2.5 trillion over the next decade just to reach a B standard. And we came nowhere close to that with a half a trillion dollar bill that we passed. So, you know, Trick was making the point by sending the pictures in that this is what we have to look forward to. This is what we're doing when you don't spend on infrastructure. The USA is fucked for sure. Thousands will starve for death, and that's just what infrastructure collapse means. Well, hopefully she's back in the fold this week. Hopefully she's doing okay. And uh, Trick, love to that sweet, sweet little baby of yours. John S. said, totally enjoying your unfuck your morning espresso. Reminds me of great coffee in Amsterdam. Wow, that's a really nice thing to say. Emil said, great show. Being from Sweden... I have a hard time following sometimes. I've been listening to Pacman for a while. Love David Pacman. One of the things he does that I appreciate is sort of first present his idea and thought and then repeats it using simpler language, which makes it easier to follow. Yeah, David's great. It's funny because I, I, I listen to a lot of David Pacman and um, sometimes I don't actually agree with, with some of his assertions, which is good and healthy, but he is really smart and he does his homework and he does his research. What I don't get knowing how hard it is to produce this every week is just how fucking prolific this guy is. He just, he's out there every single day. I don't know how he finds the time. He's amazing. Anyway, 
I think Emil was giving you a suggestion. He was. No. <laughs> but you just said like, yeah, David's cool. I just figure we should address this suggestion. Yeah, meaning <laughs> uh, sim- uh, simplify, dial it back a little. You know, I don't. I don't know. I only tell stories one way. Um, but there are even sometimes where you know, in recording, I ask you if people will understand things only coming from my view of not knowing what things meant. For example, on the infrastructure bill, you kept saying, and I didn't think of it till after when I was listening before we put it out. Don't let people keep saying this is a trillion dollar bill. It's not. Why? I don't know. I don't understand why. Tell me why it's not a trillion mm. dollar bill. You just said it's not. It's not. You know, so I didn't, but I didn't understand why. And maybe people who aren't familiar who want to learn. Didn't I say it was, a, it, it, they said it was a trillion, but it was only a half a trillion in new spending. The rest of it was just on top of the other spending that's already been itemized out. In, you you might have. the budget. It's, you know, it didn't, obviously didn't Resonate. stick in my head yeah. because it's just one drop in the whole bucket of the story. So yeah. with, with something with a point like that, you know, maybe we need to reiterate more. Well, sometimes, it, and, and and by the way, yes to all of this, and, and it's something that I've struggled with in my writing over the years, is, you know, kiss. Just keep it simple, stupid. Sometimes I go way too far afield from the point to try and make the point, and I entirely lose the plot. <laughs> and that's where I try to bring it all back in with the close. Like, the close is where I really try to, again, pull all those threads together and be like, and if all of that was just sort of noise, here's really what, what I would love you to take away from it, because here's what I've learned throughout the process. But yeah, Emil, I could do definitely a better job of getting to the point. Just ask my family members. <laughs> or 99. Yes, Manny, I'm sure is punching in right now in the future, being like, yeah, tell me about it. I got to edit this shit. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, tell me about it. I got to edit this shit. Blah, blah, blah. It's true, though. Mad annoying. Maria from Puerto Rico said, thanks again for your great podcast. Always look forward to Saturdays. Now I have a great reason to enjoy Saturday mornings even more listening to UNFTR. There's also a topic suggestion in here, which you just kind of covered on serendipitously. Please unfuck the regular media bullshit coverage of crazy nonsense and where it has gotten us. So here's why I'm pausing. A lot of the people that I follow are obsessed with criticizing the mainstream media. And we've done it. And we did it again here in show notes. It's just... I want to be careful of not contributing. I don't want to be lazy about any of this. And I'm not saying that that's a bad suggestion because the whole reason we exist is because these things aren't being covered in this particular way. I think that shows like this demonstrate that there is an appetite for it. And that's exciting to me that people are willing to commit that kind of time. I just don't think the broadcast news is built for this type of exploration. My problem with always condemning quote unquote mainstream media is that you fall very quickly into that, you know, like Crystal Ball right now has a huge following, basically built on the premise of quitting MSNBC and saying, fuck it, I won't play the corporate game. Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, all the people that we've talked about moving into their, quote, independent platforms and Substack and all those places, doing the same thing, you know, giving the finger to the man and then having their outlet. And then their entire existence becomes about rage against that media machine and They spend so much time talking about it, it almost discredits their message Mm -hmm. itself. Next week, we have a special show. I'm excited about it. And I think I'm going to be able to sort of exercise these demons a little bit in talking about that show. And we're not going to reveal anything about it right now, but it's it's one that I feel very strongly about because, um, well, for reasons that will be revealed next week. But I think I'll be able to speak to it better then. What kind of exercise are the demons doing? Like free weights and calisthenics. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Aaron Ed said, I've noticed that several people on the left in the media have discovered that if you want to make a living, (laughs) oh my God, 
I shit you not. I did not see this before. I swear That's to really God. That's really funny. Okay. Well, wait, one thing I'm... So Aaron <laughs> is God. obviously echoing sentiments here, but one thing I wanted to say before, but I opted instead to make a joke about the word exercise, <laughs> is that instead of pushing the outrage button, as Aaron said, we can do it the UNFTR way. You know, tell the story of how we got here in a different way. What was it like when we had one news channel, when the news stopped at a certain time, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like probably when you grew up because you're like what 600 mm-hmm. so there was only one station oh Just, my god hang on I gotta sneeze <laughs> fuck yourself oh, okay bless <clears> you excuse me um, so you know when the news went off and then you went to sleep or told stories around your campfire I don't know Jesus, you played 99? with your wheel and you talked through a can with a string <laughs> you know what was it like then but how did we get from one one station under God to here which is like I have truly 1000 channels on my cable to not to sound like a weird old boomer, but like, you know, there's a weird news station for everything. Sometimes I make my sister watch like Christian TV or like weird Jewish public access because I think it's fun and interesting, interesting, entertaining. But how do we get here from there? And how does how does it all fit in? So, uh, OK, <laughs> you don't have to unfuck the Christian and Jewish public media. No, I'm not even I want to touch that. It's really fun. I'm sure it is. OK. You also need a hobby. Uh, I do want to finish Aaron N's point, though. Uh, I I just want to read it fully and then jump back to you for a sec. I noticed that several people on the left in the media have discovered that if you want to make a living, the best way is to push the outrage button to get the right-wing patronage. Even the Orange Fund fuck nugget started out as a Democrat, only to turn to his side, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, pressing that outrage button is, is one of the things that we were talking about before. And what 99 brings up about, well, how the fuck did we even get here? Again, next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about this in our special episode. And I still maintain this philosophy that the golden age of journalism in America was about a decade long. And that before that, even though the circumstances and the number of outlets have changed, the disinformation hasn't. And the consolidation of, well, in the era of three channels, was news better than in the era of 5,000 channels? Not necessarily, because it was actually still controlled and manipulated by the same, you know, wealthy class that we have here. Anyway, Aaron and kind of reading our minds, actually jumping ahead of us weirdly, (laughs) even though this is already here, and appreciate you weighing in. And we had one review. The Every V said, Max... If you haven't listened to our episode on X, we suggest you go back and listen to that first. Yeah, Max assigns homework. And there's a reading list, and you can call it Book Love Max, but it's fucking homework. And thank you. This pod doesn't expect me to just listen and take their word for it. They do their homework, too. And as a critical listener, the least I can do is meet them where they are and do my homework, too. I love you guys. FMF. Uh, Thank you for that review. Yes, I guess we do kind of assign homework, but we do it with love. You assign yourself the most homework, so it's only fair. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Many Faces Media. I am William Wallace. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Thanksgiving is a farce. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by William Walker and distributed by Outrage. Send us your comments to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod and read our essays on Substack because it's always, always going to be free. I'll see you next week, 99. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. You're all Going great, going, oh, fuck, <laughs> going great doing the job. Just skip that sentence. I will. Vanderbilt would fund a counterattack that drove Wallace out of, Wallace. <laughs>
I am William Wallace.